We're in the do nots of the gospel. And what's fun about this is there's just so many times, so many places where Jesus was clear. He's like, hey, this thing right here, don't do that. Hey, hey, you're doing that? Knock it off. And so these are the moments where Jesus kind of looked out of the crowd and he was like, hey, knock it off. That's not the thing I want you to do. And it's great because there are times when Jesus is clear about that. It's good for us to pause and pay attention and see what was the heart behind why he warned us not to do that. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about not judging. Come on now, got a little tense and that was fun. And so uh, we had a good time. And so don't worry, as we go through this message, I won't be judging you. And uh, if it sounds like I am, it's coming from a good place, all right? So I'm working with you on that. Because we're in a message today and we're gonna be in Matthew chapter uh, 10. If you're a Bible person, you got your Bibles, you wanna get out and get ahead of me. I'll also jump to Daniel chapter three at some point. Uh, So if you wanna be way ahead of me, you're welcome to do that. But uh, we're in this passage today in the end of Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus essentially says, do not deny me. Do not deny me. Those aren't his exact words. We'll We'll kind of clarify that. Do not deny me. And he's talking to a group of people who are just about to go out for the first time and represent Jesus in the world. And he's saying, hey, do not deny me. Now, what's interesting is as I was thinking about this passage and not denying Jesus, I was thinking how we live in a culture today that doesn't have a lot of fear connected to potentially identifying yourself as a Christian. There's not as much fear to identifying yourself as a Christian as other times in history or other places in the world where we live. Most of us have no real authentic fear that if we self-identify as a follower of Jesus, someone may attempt to end our life. Most of us have not grown up in an environment of fear where if we identified as a follower of Jesus, we may not get an opportunity in the career path of our choice. Most of us have not lived in an environment where if we identified as a follower of Jesus, we would be kicked out of our home or community or, or wherever that is. Now, some of us have had some taste of that, but most of us have not lived in an environment where we've really lived and faced some of what Jesus is going to talk about here. So we're going to have to translate that into our culture and our worldview a little bit. So it got me thinking. I was trying to think of back, back, back to the first time that I really experienced somebody persecuting me or judging me because I was a follower of Jesus. So I had to go way back into my high school life. And I became a Christian probably around eighth grade. Um, I was about 14 at the time. And now a lot of times uh, when, when people find Jesus, like there's two usual ways, right, that things happen. Some people find Jesus and it's like, I was going this way and bam, now I'm going this way. Like, thank you, Jesus. I was going this way, and now I'm going this way. But some of us find Jesus, and we're like, oh, what about over here? Is there room over here? No? Okay, over here? And and it's a process, right? We got to walk through some steps and kind of learn what it's like to have this relationship with Jesus. And so I was one of those, um, and it took me a a little season to kind of begin to figure out what this meant, what was different in my life. I mean, I couldn't start fights all the time. I I couldn't be as angry as I was all the time. I couldn't chase what I was chasing all the time. And so, so I had to change behavior a little bit. And so as I, as I grew and, uh, and began to make more and more of a stand for Jesus, I began to fall more and more in love with Jesus. So fast forward, I'm about 16 years old now and I'm playing JV baseball. And JV baseball changes its practice schedule to practice every single Wednesday night. Now, why is that a big deal? 
because my Jesus night was Wednesday night. Some of you have had that experience. I was a youth group kid. You know, Sunday morning was fine, but whatever. But Wednesday night was my night. And so for practice to shift to Wednesday night was a very strong conflict for me. Now, some of you are nervous because you're like, I'm a parent, my kid, or I don't get whatever. Hey, listen, we're not doing the judging message, right? right? We're past that already. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you my experience. So I'm 16 years old, and I'm having a dilemma because at this point in my life, I don't miss my Jesus time. I don't work on Wednesday nights. I don't practice on Wednesday nights. That's when I'm with Jesus. That's my moment. And so I go to talk to my coach, and I say, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but I have to leave here. Now, I didn't have parents that drove me around everywhere. Back then, you were just a kid. You just rode your bike to practice. You just did what you got yourself wherever you got to go, right? I said, I got to leave here. It's about a mile and a half. If I jump on my bike at 6.55, I can be at youth group at 7, and it starts at 7. So no matter when practice starts, I have to leave here at 6.55. And he looks at me, and he goes, there's a lot of people who want your spot. If you can't be at practice, you're not going to be able to be on the team. And I remember going, I said, okay, if I can't be at practice, but I'm leaving here at 6.55. And he goes, okay, that didn't work. He goes, here's the thing then, we'll let you stay on the team. So he immediately backpedals, right? We'll let you stay on the team, but you're going to lose your starting position, your starting job. Because someone who's at all of practice is going to be there. I said, you do what you got to do. At 6.55, I'm pedaling my sweaty baseball practice, gear, muddy, gross self over to youth group. I got no one to impress over there because I'm already in love with the most beautiful girl in youth group who I married. <laughs> so I got no one left to impress over there. I'm showing up, but I'm getting there by seven o'clock. And so, so I lost my starting position. Now, you know, come on, you're high school. That's a big deal. I also gained a nickname that I, see, all my nicknames before this were basically cool nicknames. Nicknames like Big Dog or, you know, like cool nicknames. But I got a new nickname. My nickname became Church Muffin. Now, fellas, if you've been a high school boy, which you have, you understand that Church Muffin is not an acceptable nickname for a big, strong jock. But I became Church Muffin, and Wednesdays would come, and I would hear things like, oh, Church Muffin has to go now. Church Muffin has to take off. Church Muffin has to leave. And for the first time in my life, you know, at, at 16 years old, I'm like, I'm so persecuted for my faith, 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 right? But that was my worldview, and that's what I knew. Now, you know, some of you are like, oh, I'm not sure how I do that. But here's the thing. I'm not saying that you should not, you know, take a job if it makes you work on Sunday. I'm not saying you should not play a sport or an activity. I'm not judging you on any of those things. Here is what I am saying. I am saying that you should deeply consider anytime someone or something asks you to lay down what Jesus has asked you to pick up. Whatever that does to your life or to your schedule, you should deeply consider. You should never move quickly when anyone or anything asks you to lay down something that Jesus has asked you to pick up. And so I'm not judging you, but you do what you have to do with that and how we process that. But here's the thing. It's when I first kind of came online to this idea that if I followed Jesus, if I had a relationship with Jesus, I was gonna have to make some decisions. That following Jesus, saying yes to him, meant I wouldn't have to say no to some other things. Up until that point, everything was just kind of one life, and I just did everything I wanted to do. And suddenly, I had to begin to make some decisions. And Jesus stresses in this passage and in the word that constantly, as we make decisions and choices to pursue a relationship with him, we're going to have to, from time to time, say no, come on now, to some other things 
that would distract us, weigh us down, or would be ultimately unhealthy or destructive for us. And so here's Jesus talking to a group of people who in Matthew chapter 10 are for the very first time, the very first time gonna go out and meet people and tell them about Jesus. Up until this point, this hasn't been a thing yet. So he's commissioned them and said, hey, you're gonna go out, you're gonna go town to town and you're gonna talk to them and demonstrate with power and authority what it is you've experienced because you've experienced a relationship with me. Now, this isn't too unlike our situation just on a day-to-day basis. We've now experienced this relationship with Jesus. We've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. We've experienced life change and transformation. And then we go from that place into the world every day representing what it is we have experienced. But this is the first time in scripture that someone else had to deal with that tension. So he gives them a series of kind of warnings and boundaries and guidelines to prepare them for what they should expect now that they're representing Jesus. So we're in Matthew chapter 10. And it's all about what happens when you take the gospel out. I'm going to kind of paraphrase and then we'll pick up at verse 24. But he's laying it out for them. And you see some pretty interesting things because they're fairly confident in their relationship with Jesus. But he points out some things that aren't going to be necessarily as positive or as easy as we would think. In verses 11 through 15, he actually says, some of the towns you go into are going to receive you, and it's going to be awesome, and you're going to build a relationship, and they're going to bring you in, and it's going to be like family, and it's going to be awesome. But some are not. Some of the communities that you walk into are not going to receive you, and you're going to have to shake the dust off your feet, and you're going to have to remove the potential blessing that you would have been had you stayed in that environment from that situation and go on to the next place. He says not everywhere you go, not every community you walk into is going to be thrilled, come on now, that a Jesus person has just shown up. It's going to be a challenge. He goes on in verse 16 and 17 to talk about persecution that they're going to experience specifically from religious authorities. He says, there are going to be some church folks who think they are expert in church world who are going to judge you when you come to town and start talking to people about Jesus, start loving people like Jesus, start representing Jesus where you go. Not every church folk you run into is going to have a true, authentic understanding of what the love of Jesus looks like. Some of them have never even experienced, but they are going to have behaviors that they think you should fit, and Jesus people don't always fit church people opinions. Ooh, did you get that on the podcast? Some of you might have to listen to that back. Jesus people don't always fit church people opinions. Sometimes we got to break through some expectations, some behavior things, some things that have crept in in a religious environment so that we can love like Jesus, look like Jesus, and behave like Jesus where we go. He says religious people aren't always going to like you. Where you go? Verse 16, 17. <laughs> Verse 18. Here comes the fire. Politicians and political people are not going to be excited every time you walk into their environment and start representing Jesus. Silence, crickets, not one amen. Let's try that again. Politicians and politically driven, when political agenda driven people are not always going to receive Jesus people and their heart for loving people that doesn't look like the current politics of that day. That's going to be hard on you. He says, you're going to represent me. And people with political bents aren't going to be having it. You're going to face that. You're going to experience it. Verses 21 through 23. He says, hey, your friends and your family may have some tension. 
you may realize, come on, some of you experienced this, your circle of friends aren't cool with the way you've shifted your behavior and begun loving and treating people as a Jesus person. What happened to good time Mike? What happened to ball player Mike? What happened to whatever? Some of you have experienced it in your home. He says, hey, some of your family members are gonna look at you and say, hey, that's not what we do. That's not our tradition in our family. That's not how we do that in our family. And you begin to have to face the genuine, authentic tension of standing for Jesus, even when standing with your family. So Jesus paints a pretty, I was like, thanks, God. Thanks for this bleak picture. <laughs> a pretty authentic picture of, hey, you're going to leave this place. You're going to go out into the world. You're going to go into communities. You're going to go into neighborhoods. You're going to go into households. You're going to go into relationships with people. And there is going to be some tension. Why? Because you now represent me. And then we pick up in verse 24. And he says, this is why. Because a student, that's us, is not above a teacher, that's him. Nor a servant, that's us, is above his master, that's him. He says, it is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. Listen to this. If the head of the house, that's him, has been called Beelzebub, ouch, Beelzebub literally is Lord of the Flies or devil, he says, if I, the head of the house, have been called the devil, how much more the members of the household? What is he saying? He's saying, let's have an honest picture that when you leave and you represent me, you're not perfect. I'm perfect. And in my perfection, they called me the devil. They rejected me. They spat at me. They tried to kill me. I, was a, uh, I stirred up political discontent. My family had a hard time with me. There was tension all around this thing. No matter what the tension is, I experienced it. You should expect to experience and keep on loving like Jesus. Keep on living like Jesus. Keep on doing the thing that I've called you to do. Verse 26. Three times he's about to warn us, hey, don't be afraid. Some of you are like, hmm, I don't, I'm not feeling too great about this, right? He's going to massage it a little bit here, and then he's going to hammer it home. He says, so don't be afraid of them. So you know what I get afraid of things is when I don't know what to expect. When I can't prepare, when I can't emotionally kind of resolve myself, when I'm going into a conversation, I know it's going to be tense, but I don't know. Or here's the worst one. When someone calls and says, we really need to talk, but they don't want to tell me what it's about. And then I have all these million things of all the dumb things I've done in my life. And I'm like, which dumb thing offended them? And I'm not even sure. And it's never even the thing that they're worried about. They have a totally different thing, but I don't know what to expect. So here's Jesus saying, hey, you're going to represent me everywhere you go. And some people are going to receive you. It's going to be a blessing, and you're going to see the power of God come out. People's lives are going to be changed. Hope is going to fill the earth. You're going to transform culture, change culture. But some places you go, that door is going to get slammed in your face, just like you saw it happen to me. So expect that so that when it happens, come on now, it doesn't inspire panic. It doesn't inspire fear. It doesn't remove your hope. You just go, oh, I get it. I'm like Jesus now. I'm experiencing what Jesus experiences. Verse 26, so don't be afraid of them for there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed nor hidden that will not be made known. Verse 27, this is such beautiful language. What I tell you in the dark, speak it in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. 
Here again, don't be afraid, second time, of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid, this is revere and respect, the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. What is he saying? He's saying, God's paying attention. And even, I love this, the very, and, and I insert the word few, hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not, third time, be afraid because you are more valuable than sparrows. You're worth many sparrows. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, be prepared. Expect resistance. Expect the world to struggle with the truth of who I am and how I love. Expect it to fly in the face of the current state of affairs. Expect it to fly in the face of the current level of political debate. Expect it to fly in the face of some religious people. Expect it to fly in the face of the expectation of even your friends and your family. Do not be afraid when that happens. Your heavenly father is paying attention to you and has your back. Powerful. It's powerful. So then he lands on this passage that we read and don't know what to do with. For whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. What is he talking about? Well, he's walked through this idea that we try, here's the thing, we always expect better than Jesus, right? We always expect, hey, I'm following you, Jesus. Why isn't everything awesome? He's like, um, I am me, and it wasn't all awesome. <laughs> but, but we don't want to live in that tension, right? We're like, we're like, oh, yeah, we forget that they kept trying to kill you, and they threw rocks, and they did all that kind of stuff. We forget. We just push that side off, and uh, we feel that tension. So he's trying to clarify that for us. He's like, they called me the devil, so just be ready for some tension, and then he lands on this verse 32, and he says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll also acknowledge him before my father. And whoever disowns me before men, I'll disown him before my father. So what is he saying? We gotta break these words apart a little bit here to make it make sense. Because the word acknowledge, is a, it's a powerful word. And in the Greek, it's a word that I can't pronounce well, so I'll struggle through it so that you know I looked it up and I didn't make it up, but it's hard to, it's like a lot of syllables. One, two, three, four, five. So it's homologejo which kind of sounds like Spanish, so I should probably be able to roll that out. But, uh, <laughs> but that's that word, acknowledge. And what I love about that word is it literally means agrees with. It literally means agrees with. And, he, and essentially, here's Jesus saying, hey, if you agree with me when you're before men, then I'll also agree with you in the presence of my Father. What is he saying? He's saying, we'll be on the same page. We'll be on the same team. Now, it's a powerful thing to say you agree with Jesus. It's a powerful thing. And you gotta get into the word in order to understand what it is you're saying you agree to when you say you agree to Jesus. You agree with Jesus. Because he said some pretty wild things. One of the more powerful things he said is, uh, it happens a couple chapters later in John, uh, John chapter 14, and Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a powerful thing that he said. So here's Jesus saying, um, I'm looking for the people who agree with me when I say the things that I've said. That can be tense. You gotta begin to ask yourself, do I really agree with Jesus? Does my life agree with Jesus? Does my speech agree with Jesus? Do I fundamentally agree with Jesus? Because Jesus is saying, when you agree with me, then I get to agree with you before my Father in heaven. He said other things that were pretty intense. He said things like, whatever you've done for the least of these, it's like you did it for me. He says powerful things that drive the narrative of what it means to be a Jesus follower. 
And we say, oh, yeah, I'm great with Jesus because we have a picture of, like, he's just awesome and nice to everybody. But we don't necessarily get into what does it mean to say, yeah, but do I agree with him? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you agree with me before men, I'll agree with you before my father. Verse 33, he goes, but whoever, and I love the breakdown of this word uh, of uh, deny or what it is, because the language literally says, surrenders the privilege of. What a powerful picture. Why did the English just not go with that? such a better picture. He says, if you surrender the privilege of me, because it's a gift and I've given it to you, then I surrender the privilege of you. Then I'll end up surrendering. It's a privilege, but I want it and you have it and it's there for you. So don't do that. So how do we surrender the privilege? What does that look like? How, what is the picture of that? I was looking through the scriptures, trying to think of a, of a story or a narrative that gives us a picture of what it looks like to do this. And I landed in Daniel chapter three, and it's a great story. Most of you know the story. I'm going to paraphrase the story and I'll take us through it a little bit because it's the kind of picture that we need to see of what it looks like when we're in an environment, in a state that isn't welcoming to the faith that we profess. And many of you know the story, especially if you're a parent uh, and you have uh, veggie tales at all, then you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they show up in Daniel chapter three, and it is a, uh, a beautiful, beautiful story and picture. So let me paint the picture for you just a little bit here, and then I'll walk you through kind of uh, how this relates, because I want you to see that for thousands of years, Jesus is moving forward and backwards through time, saying the same thing, uh, because he is consistent and he cannot deny himself. King Nebuchadnezzar has conquered uh, uh, Judea uh, and has what they're, uh, he's the Babylonian king, he's the most successful Babylonian king. And essentially his move and the move from the Babylonians, when they conquered a people, they didn't wipe them out. They just took the young studs of that people, the best, sharpest, and brightest, and then they just brought them into their kingdom, and then they just indoctrinated them, and then they would send them back as ambassadors. So basically their goal was to just assimilate your culture, get you to agree with their culture instead, and then send you back into your culture so that you would just assimilate and become one with them. Here's the thing I want you to catch right off the bat. The enemy has been for thousands of years in the same strategic mode, trying to assimilate the culture of the people of God so that they lay down the things that are holy, that are spiritual, that are honoring to God and compromise with culture and then come back and infect that into the people of God. It's the same strategy he's been using for thousands and thousands and, and it works, which is why he keeps doing it. So that's what's happening here. So here comes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're sharp guys. They're friends of Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar is strategically trying to absorb this culture, these Jewish people, these young Hebrew boys. And so as part of that strategy, he decides we're going to train them that the way you worship when you're here in Babylon is the highest, most important place of worship and adoration. Let me think, that's me. Right? When you're the king, you get to do that. And he goes, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to build an idol of me. But we got to make sure it can be seen far and wide throughout the land. So it's got to be gold. And I'm thinking like 90 feet. Yeah, he didn't, you know, go big or go home. So they, can, they build this 90-foot replica of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's gold. And it's awesome, I'm sure. And they tell everyone, this is how we worship here. 
When you hear the harps, when you hear the lyres, when you hear the music playing, everyone stops whatever you're doing. We all face, come on now, the idol, and we bow and we worship. That's what you do here. And everyone's like, oh, that's not what I do. And they said, well, that's what you do now because if you don't do it, guess what we're gonna do? What are we gonna do? We're gonna heat up the furnace and we're gonna throw you in there. Now, I don't know if you have a list of like worst ways to die. To die. Like if you've compiled a list or thought about it before, like, all right, God, you know, I know we're all gonna meet you face-to-face some way. It'd be cool to just meet you in the air. So come on back, that'd be the best. But short of that, like in my sleep maybe, or you know what I mean? But, but cooked alive is probably pretty high on your list of things I don't want right? It's up there with like shark attack or something. I'm not sure like what thing you're afraid of. So that's what he says. We're going to cook you alive. So they have a moment. The thing's built. Here comes the music. Everyone hears the music. They go, oh, this is the moment where we bow down and worship the direction that the king wants us to worship, that culture wants us to worship, that the community that we're in wants us to worship. We send our affection, our adoration, our, we make it the first thing of our life. And so we bow in this direction. Here's the thing. These boys had been picked because they were best, brightest, best looking. I'm imagining they're relatively tall. And everyone's bowing. Just imagine there's a sea of rear ends, right? And three dudes like this. It is clear that these three fellas are not bowing. Now, here's the thing. And this happens to us all the time. We find ourselves in environments where all of culture says, you have to say this is okay. And you're like, I don't think that's okay. You're like, but you have to, all of culture is moving this way. This is the way, this is our affection is going this direction. And you're like, I don't think that's the way it's okay. And then all of culture, there's a moment and you say, okay, now's the moment where you declare that you're okay with that. And here's the tension. We go, uh, I don't really want everyone looking at me. I'm not really sure. Like, I don't want that attention. I don't need that drama. So I'm not going to bow, but I'm just going to kind of like lean back so that I'm not that tall anyways, right? Some of you tall guys are like, dang it, I'm out. But uh, like, you're like, I'm just going to stub my toe and like lean over and tie my shoe or something. And we try to find ways, come on now, to compromise so that the, the, the uh, pressure is not placed on us in that moment. And here's three young men who won't compromise. Say, so, hey, we're followers of Yahweh. And our God says we put no other God before him. And so we're not gonna bow to this thing that you're saying we need to bow to. Now you gotta imagine the king's primary strategy of assimilation is we all do this thing. And here's these three knuckleheads who I believe are relatively young. I'll show you why in just a minute. They're like, hey, we aren't playing your game. We're not in. So the satraps and the lawyers and the legal people all come together and they're like, grab them. And they grab them, and they're like, bow. And they're like, we're not going to bow. They're like, we're bringing you to the kings. Do whatever you want. We're not going to bow. So we pick up in Daniel chapter 3, and I'm in verse 16. And the king's like, hey, you knew the rules. You knew what happened. Why didn't you bow? And listen to this language. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. That's why I think they're teenagers. That's a teenager answer if I ever heard one, right? <laughs> I don't have to explain myself. <laughs> yes, many years of youth ministry. Some of you are like, I still use that. Um, <laughs> oh, king who's conquered us, who's created a death sentence for anyone who doesn't obey. 
I don't even owe you an explanation on this matter. Why? Because you know what I stand for and you know who I am. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us from your hand. O king, verse 18, if you are a highlighter or an underlighter, this is what you want to underline or highlight today. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. But even if he does not. You know what that is, guys? That's faith. Faith is, I know God is able, but even if he does not. I know God can do it. I know he can heal. I know he can restore. I know he can revive. I know he can replenish. I know he can redeem. But even if he does not, I will not compromise what I know to be true from my God. That is faith. And that is faith on display. I'm going to jump ahead from the passage right there. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, <laughs> I am intentional and very much out of respect for the office of pastor and this pulpit and my assignment. I never go political from right here. I just won't. It's not worth it to me. The only cause I am about is the cause of Christ. Uh, but I feel the tension that we all feel when we look out and we see people who love Jesus on opposite sides of opposing opinions, leaving Jesus behind and entering into the fray and not, come on now, being in the people business or the Jesus business or the love business, but being in some other business that just gets messy and ugly and confused. And I feel all of that tension, just like you feel that tension. And because I felt that tension, I have been listening and, and, uh, and looking at things that inspire me in those moments to challenge my way of thinking about how to enter into the conversation and the narrative about just what is right and what is Jesus. So I've been listening to, and I'll, I'll out myself, I've been listening to old Martin Luther King Jr. sermons. You can find them on YouTube, and it's been inspiring me and challenging me to, to, uh, to think differently. He was 38 when he was preaching his messages, and I'm 38 now, so, so I was like, oh, you know, I feel like about this big when I'm listening to him preach. I'm like, man, come on, somebody. He's preaching hard, and it's great. But I unabashedly uh, was listening to this, and I just thought, oh, man, this just lands right in the heart of what Jesus is sharing with us today. So I'm going to share this with you, and it's from a, from a Martin Luther King Jr. message, but, but he, he simply said this. He said there's two kinds of faith in the world. He said there's an if faith and there's a though faith. There's an if faith and there's a though faith. And let me break that down for you. He says many of us have an if faith. And an if faith looks like this. God, I will follow you if, if I don't lose my position of authority. If I don't lose my financial security. If my health is, and security are safe. If my family is never put at risk. I will follow you if you take care of the details of my life that I need taken care of. If you come through for me first, God, then I will be faithful. And many of us get locked in an if faith. We don't even realize it. We walk into this relationship with Jesus and we see the truth of the scriptures. We see the truth of his provision and protection and we skip over the parts where he says, don't expect better treatment than I got and then we don't connect the dots till they killed him. 
And so we have this approach to our faith that says, hey, God, I'm in and I'm with you. And I see that you care about the sparrows and you count the numbers on my head. So if you take care of me, I'm in. And then we face hardship, tragedy, struggle, and things come and we go, well, this isn't working. And so we bow down into whatever direction. Come on now. Culture says this is the path that you have to go then. You know, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, he's young in his journey. He hasn't wrestled with an angel yet. And he demonstrates what an if faith looks like. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, catch this, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Do you see the picture? And we look at that and you think immediately, oh, that's ridiculous. That's in the scripture. That's Jacob. Who are we to think that we wouldn't incidentally or accidentally or, uh, or just kind of sideways inadvertently walk into that kind of a mentality or a faith when it comes to Jesus? And we say, all right, I'm in, God. So here's what I need. I need my marriage to work out. I need my financial security to work out. I need my health to work out. I need all my other relationships. I need my kids to follow you. I need all those things to happen. As long as those things are happening, I'm in. And I'm in for the long haul. I'll even give 10%. Whoo. That's an if faith. There's also a though faith. To get to an example of a though faith, I'm going to take you to a guy you heard of named Job. And Job has a pretty powerful story, and you know the story, and I'm not going to get too far into the story. But at the point of the story where we pick up, he's lost essentially everything that we could imagine. He's lost his family, his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. His friends have turned on him. And his wife has basically said, listen, bud. I don't know what's up with this absurdity of you continuing to say you're going to trust God, but your situation is pretty crummy. So at this point, I give you essentially permission to just kind of curse God and die. Thanks, wife. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, but though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, I will surely defend my ways to his face. I love that. Job just says, I'm not tapping out. And I've experienced what I don't know if I could experience. I don't know if you could experience. I'm not judging you or not. Don't judge me. He has experienced the loss of children, the loss of wealth, the loss of security. And he looks to the heavens and says, I'm not turning on God. Even though, so that's a though faith. Though faith says, hey, though cancer, I won't turn from him. Though faith says, though my kids run away from the Lord, I won't turn from him. Though faith says, though my financial security, though my job, though my whatever it is, I won't turn from him. So the question is, do you have a if faith, if faith or a though faith? You know, I was pastoring in another place and uh, we had gained a, a family, and I was meeting with them. <clears throat> and they had left a larger church in the community. And I was hearing the story because it's always fun to kind of hear the story of how'd you find us and, you know, where you've been on your journey and just hearing that story. 
And the gentleman that I was talking to said, you know, we came from another church and they had a kind of a different philosophy about things. And, um, you know, the, the type of philosophy they had was essentially that, you know, if you're being blessed, it's because God's blessing you and wants to bless you. If you're not being blessed, then there's something wrong with you and you need to fix whatever that is and you'll be blessed. And, and I said, well, that's interesting. And he goes, well, what happened was one of the founding pastors, he wasn't the lead pastor, but one of the founding pastors, wife got sick, she got cancer. So they fired him because she can't get sick if, come on now, if my faith is connected to God will do this or else. Now, listen, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's places that, and I, maybe you don't know that we don't do that here, but that's, <laughs> we don't do that here. And so <laughs> that's going to be on the podcast. That's fine. And so, and so I'm listening to him and my heart is breaking as he's weeping and just saying a friend that he knows and a woman that's going through sickness and essentially finding that the faith that they were connected to was an if faith. And it was only if God did what I need him to do, then, I'll, then I'm in. And God doesn't call us to an if faith. It's a though you slay me, yet will I serve him. I will surely stand and tell him to his face. God, I'm in. I didn't get it all right. I swung hard and I missed a lot of times, but I'm happy to tell you I did whatever I could to live for you and to follow you. So what happens when we tank it? What happens when we whiff? What happens when we swing and we miss? You know, a few weeks ago, I talked about Peter. And uh, I talked about the fact that Jesus didn't reinstate Peter in John chapter 21. And you can look at the podcast on that. And we had a lot of fun with just the, the fact that, that that's not part of the Bible, but we all think that it is. And he simply reaffirms Peter. But the conversation starts because Peter is probably the most famous denial of Jesus in the whole scripture. Peter, who was here hearing Jesus say, hey, don't do this, actually did it. Yet Jesus still went to him and just said, hey, do you love me? Then go back to work. So what is that thing? We have to look at the text and understand. In Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail and that when you've turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. But he, this is Peter, Simon, replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now listen, I think a lot of times we feel this way when we haven't been challenged and we haven't been tested. And our ego and our faith collide. And we go, I'm in all the way to the end, Jesus. I don't care if it's prison. I don't care if it's death. Because we know that the percentage opportunity that prison and death would possibly be on the table is like nothing. That's like saying, if there was a great white shark in here, I'd punch him in the nose. Because there's not a great white shark jumping into this building. That's not a reality that I'm going to have to face. And a lot of times, come on, we don't even recognize that we have an if faith because it hasn't been tested. It hasn't gone through the flames. And Jesus is talking to Peter and it's the end and he's explaining, I'm gonna go to the cross, they're gonna arrest me, all these things are gonna happen and they don't understand. And he says, and everyone's gonna turn from me and Peter's like, no, that will never happen. I don't care if I have to go to jail. I don't care if I have to face death. Verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you're gonna deny three times that you know me. That's a burn, in case you're wondering. That's like a burn. Then Jesus asked him, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? That's the passage we just read from Matthew 10. Nothing, they answered. He says, you, you're not gonna lack anything. But what's fascinating is that you back up and you hear Jesus' words. He says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. Same story with Job. 
Satan wants to put you to the test. Satan wants to, to, try, to try to, you know what a sifting is, right? You know, like you watch the gold rush shows and like he wants to see what's really inside of you. He wants to put you through the hog thing, hog, whatever they call that thing. He goes, but I've prayed for you that when you're sifted, when you're t- hopper, it's a hopper. Hog, hopper, you know, same thing. <laughs> Satan wants to put you in the hopper. You guys aren't watching Gold Rush. <laughs> he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, here's the big giant takeaway from that. Jesus didn't pray for him that he wouldn't deny him. That would have been powerful and strong, and it would have worked because Jesus always got what he prayed for. But he didn't pray. He just said, I am praying that you don't ever blow it because I know that you're going to blow it. Here's what I'm praying for is though you make mistakes, though you struggle, though in the moment when you're trying to represent me, you haven't even realized that your faith hasn't moved from an if faith to a though faith. Though you're still in the process of maturity, though you're still facing down individual circumstances that sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're going to lose, in the midst of those things, what I'm praying for is that your faith in me doesn't fail. See, that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. That's when they said, but if he doesn't, come on now, he's able to, but if he doesn't, what's beautiful about that end of the story, if you read the rest of the text there, and some of you know the story, they get tossed in the fire. Not only do they get tossed in the fire, they get tossed in the fire, and when they look in, they're like, these guys aren't melting, heat it up. And they heat the fire at such a temperature that the guys who are throwing fuel on the fire, they die from getting too close to the roaring hot fire, but there's still three guys okay in the fire. And then they look and they go, wait a second, there's not three guys okay in the fire. Uh Uh-oh, there's four. And that fourth guy, you know what he looks like? He looks like the son of man. What am I saying? Jesus for thousands of years through history, back and forth, saying the same thing, that when you are, sh- are facing the temptation, my prayer and my hope for you is always that your faith wouldn't fail. And when it doesn't, I'm with you. Doesn't mean you're not gonna avoid the fire. You might get into the fire before you find out if he's gonna rescue you or take you home. And either one is victory. Either one is victory. But you might get into the fire before you realize You might have to say no to that thing that you want to say yes to before you realize that he has something better for you. Come on now. You may have to not bow and face the potential consequences of not bowing and not agreeing and not giving your assent before you recognize, come on now, that he's got something better for you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if he does not, that's what faith looks like. So my question for you is a couple things, but primarily this. Do you have an if faith or do you have a though faith? Because Jesus said, you're gonna walk from this place and if you're gonna represent me, you're gonna face some realities. And you know this is true. I'm not shocking you. You've been in these environments and it's been a struggle and you've had to ask the question. You've had to say, okay, how are we gonna do this when my family isn't with me? How am I gonna stand for Jesus? How am I gonna do that when that child, come on now, is unrepentant or is un- not walking back and it's not, how am I gonna do that when that spouse isn't, isn't come on now, gonna make peace like I wanna make peace? How am I gonna do that when I get the health prognosis that I didn't wanna get? How am I gonna do that? Do you have an if faith? Come on now, or do you have a though faith? Jesus says, <laughs> you don't realize, but the way you interact and represent me out there, it either, come on, affirms that you know me or it denies 
that you know me. And here's the thing I think sometimes that is haunting that we don't think about. Because we all, I believe, come on, I believe in you, I believe the best in you. When put to the test, if I were to look you in the eye right now and just say, if you're in here and you stand for Jesus, stand up. And I compel you to stand and shame you into standing, whatever I needed to do. We all think we'd pass that test, right? I don't stand for you in this kind of environment. Here's what I don't know. What I don't know is when you're at work, when you're just hanging with your friends, when you're online and your social media snapfishes, <laughs> wherever you're at, are you affirming that you know him or are you denying it? Are you living for him or are you rejecting him? Is it coming out? Because I think sometimes we, we relegate this type of thinking to the dimension of, you know, death or life. And we forget that everything we do is Jesus. The way we love is Jesus. The way we represent him is Jesus. And I can imagine, would you stand with me? We're going to get ready to close here. I'll wake you up here for a second. But I can imagine, this has been my dream. We're a couple weeks away now from a uh, annual business meeting and starting to unpackage the direction and the mission and the life of where things are going here. And it has been such an exciting season. I'm at 18, 19 months and God's just doing amazing things and you guys are amazing and God's super faithful. And I just, I, I've been dreaming. And this is one of the things I've been dreaming about. And I wanted to share this with you because we're going this way. Can you imagine if a little church like this just got into our hearts and into our minds that we got to be the people who represented Jesus, right smack here in the South Hill or Graham or Puyallup, wherever you're at. If we got to be the people that represented Jesus in our school district, on our kids' sports teams, come on now, in our little community groups, our mom's groups, our football watching Monday night crew, whatever it was, if we got to be that people, what difference could that make right here? Because Jesus sent a smaller group than this out with basically that commission, and entire communities got changed. Political folks came over to the other side saying, we don't understand your politics, but we respect that you love an unconditional love. We respect that you treat people who don't agree with you like they have value. We respect, oh, and it began changing culture, and it literally changed the world. Can you imagine if a group of, group of us believed that? and started to live like that, and started to treat people like that, if we took that into the marketplace, what that would do, if we took it into the school district, what that would do, if we took it into the park and rec district, whatever it is, we took it to the mall, wherever you go, if we took that into that environment, the kind of difference and change and impact that we could have, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be worth it? Wouldn't that be inspiring? Wouldn't that make you want to get up and say, man, what else could the God of creation do? And some of you are like, you don't understand, Pastor Mike, I'm not an uh, evangelist. I'm not asking you to be an evangelist. But if you're a Jesus person, I'm asking you to be a Jesus person. Wherever you go. Can you imagine that? And some of us have been stuck in an if faith for too long. And I just want to push you over and say, hey, you don't have to be stuck there. Jesus' prayer is the same for you. You've been sifted but your faith doesn't have to fail. There is hope and he is faithful. Jesus, we love you. And I am so incredibly grateful. First, just for your word and how it transforms us and changes us and reveals your heart for us. And it just literally calibrates us to your heart. And I'm so thankful for your heart that has for us 
to be whole. And God, I pray for those of us who have struggled, even in the, in the midst of saying, yeah, we're a Jesus person, but how does that look when we meet resistance? And how does that look in our home? And how does that look in our neighborhood? And how does that look in the places where we go and the places where we represent ourselves? God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would, you would just in us, ignite in us a passion to do what you've called us to do and simply represent you in all the places that we go. And God, I, I just, I, I can't, I can't wait to see what happens when you change our perspective on how to love and how to live and how to represent you everywhere we go. And I'm so incredibly grateful that you just entrust us with it for this season. And though you slay me, though we face the fiery furnace, though we face a culture saying you have to bow down and look in the direction and agree in assent, though everyone else do that, God, we are gonna be the people who just represent you. We love without conditions and believe in the core value of every soul that you've created. Believe that you died and rose again for them just like you did for us. And if we treated them with that kind of love and demonstrated that, it would cross every social political boundary there is. And we would just get to meet people and introduce them to you. We love you and thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.